Hayden is a presenter and producer of radio and television. You'd see him on things like Uploaded, Irish Ghost Hunters, Box Office with Lisa Cannon, and most importantly with me on We Love Movies on Spin. I asked Gordon to give me a list of his three films and I have to say I love what he gave me. Any other critic, I think you'd kind of, you ask them for three films and there's a kind of a race to show how clever you are, something really obscure. All three of these films are very accessible, very rewatchable and really kind of shows his, his B-movie and, and horror roots, which if you've seen him or if you've met him, you know, I'm surprised that that's his type of genre. He told me some great, really personal stories about why he loves these movies and talking to him, it's hard not to get swept up with just like how much he, he loves and how much he's still passionate about films, even after all these years. So here's my chat with Gordon Hayden. Hope you enjoy it. Gordon, thanks a lot for joining me there. You've given me a, a nice mix of genre movies there, but one's probably that we consider kind of B-movies. With your job and your experience, I think most people would have this perception that a, a professional movie critic would have to pick, you know, four-hour subtitled French films that no one's ever seen. Without giving too much away about these picks, what is it about these type of movies that appeal to you? Um, well, do you know what, Andy? I, for some bizarre reason, I've always had a huge affinity for horror. Um, and and I think at, at the root of these films, there's there's a horror edge to them. And I don't know where that actually came from. To be perfectly honest with you, I don't have an older sibling or a cousin that um introduced me to horror in any big way. Um, I think that is just ingrained in me. I've just always had this fascination. Maybe it stemmed from. As a kid growing up, um, to a degree, the, my mum would always be very much against me watching certain films. I know she's quite a, a God-fearing woman, so um, I was definitely not allowed to watch The Omen and The Exorcist. So maybe there was a part of me wanted to rebel in some in some form by trying to seek out um, films that were very much like uh, horror-ingrained action where it was definitely not the type of films that you your, your parents should be catching you watching. So I think maybe if I was to do a pop psychology on myself, maybe that's where it probably stems from. Um, but I just think it's a time of place as well uh, um, and the significance of these choices, which brings me back. Uh, and uh, so, yeah, I think that the first film out of the traps is definitely the, the, the Wicker Man. That was the one that really sowed the seed for me, Andy, when it came to my love of horror. You've said it there, the first one, one of the, the, the best horror films of all time, The Wicker Man, about Sergeant Howe, played by Edward Woodward. He arrives on this small Scottish island to investigate a missing child, and he finds this, this sort of weird Celtic pagan cult. What really stands out for me is that it's, it's set mostly in the day, which is something that is very hard to do in horror. It's very heavily influenced, you know, it's heavily influenced by things like Midsummer and Hot Fuzz. What is it about the particular tone of this film that really resonates with you? I just love the, the uneasiness about it. Um, and it's a real sense of atmosphere that the director, Robin Hardy, achieved with it. Because like at the time, Christopher Lee, one of the stars of the film, he would have been probably best known for making a lot of the Hammer Horror and Amicus type of horror films. And there was a campy feel to it. Whereas with this, there was a very much an unsettling tone. Like the minute Edward Woodward, Sergeant Howie, arrived on that island, you just realize this is not what it seems. There are really weird things going on. It's almost like the the locals have some big dark secret that they're keeping from him. And he's on that island to 
investigate the disappearance of a missing girl and he just feels like hang on a second is everyone on this island in cahoots with each other and i think it's the things that he notices that um on the island that really start to unsettle him and the island is governed by um this character played by christopher lee whose name is lord summerisle and there's a scene in it andy which i think just I, I said to myself, when I saw this on TV, I thought, I have to seek this film out. There used to be a show on MTV years ago, and it was a movie show they had. And they had a particular section where they would look at cult movies. And the film of choice this one particular week was The Wicker Man. And the scene that they played um, to just when we were talking about the film, giving a bit of context to the film, was a scene in which Howie is in Lord Summerisle's uh, palatial house, and he's talking to him about the island and trying to get a real sense of the island. And in the background, out the window, you can see a number of young people, all naked, and they are jumping over a small bonfire, essentially. And Howie just can't get with it. He's like, going, he said it sort of somewhere in, in, in an exasperated tone. He's like going, he's like, they're actually they're jumping over a bonfire. He goes, what, what, what are they doing? They're, like, they're naked. And he goes, you're hot. And Lord Tomorrow, <laughs> his reaction to it is, is one of kind of slightly kind of taken aback as if, what are you even talking about? You know, he can't understand. He's kind of um, bemused. And he just says, well, you hardly expect them to wear, be wearing clothes. As if by wearing clothes, obviously, there's <laughs> a greater sense of getting, you know, um, a, a hurt. And I just went, this film is bonkers. So um, that was one of the those horror films that I went, I have to seek this out and this is at a time Andy if I go back into the mists of time and back into the 90s where the internet was still very much in its infancy and you really had to really do some digging at times to try and seek out movies because now movies are like fast food you know it's so easy to order them you know, online and um, and to seek them out on streaming services or what have you so it, 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 you know, trying to find a movie like The Wicker Man, like it, it meant either buying it at the time on um, on DVD or, you, you know, late night on something like BBC Two or Channel Four uh, trying to find it. So it just wasn't that easy. So you'd have and then also, as I mentioned, the Internet was in its infancy. So trying to get information on the film, you were either trying to find old uh, movie magazines or books that uh, where pieces had been written about the film. So they almost had a real um uh, lore about them um uh, because it would take sometimes quite a while to be able to see these films so for me they just it, it, it almost added to the sense of occasion when you really got to sit down and watch it and i just think for me the wicker man is the mac daddy of folk horror it really is and i think you only have to see the influence that film has had on other filmmakers, even people like Eli Roth, to a degree, you only have to watch um, his first movie, Hostel, and there's shades of The Wicker Man in, in certain scenes in it, and and also Ben Wheatley, um, who has really, really got folk horror ingrained within um, his sense of style with movies like Kill List and A Field in England, Sightseers as well. Like, there's definitely um, huge um, shades of, of The Wicker Man. Um, as I've also made their way into his work as well. So, yeah, it's a hugely influential film, but, yeah, it's the tone and style which, Andy, I just think really sets it apart as well. 
you touched on it there that you, it's not something, you know, we kind of got this fast food horror now. And I know there was the, the famous story where the studio executives wanted to change the end into that, like a sudden rainstorm appears and, and spares him his life. I can't let you go without talking about the the remake of that, which, you know, very much didn't capture the tone of the original. Even the, the sequel to this film was the same as well. Why do you think horror films now aren't able to kind of capture tone as opposed to having, you know, kind of things like Hostel and so, which rely so much on the, on the blood and guts aspects of horror? I think there's such a cookie-cutter mentality when it comes to horror at the moment, and it's almost as if, you know, if you take a, a particular franchise like I'm just going to use this just as a pure example, like The Purge, which has obviously nothing to do with The, the Wicker Man. But, you know, it's almost like make them and get them out as quickly as possible. Just try and, 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 and try and milk it for what it's worth. And I don't know, there, it, it just seems like there at times there's a real dearth of, of really imaginative ideas coming through. There's, there's loads of horror movies being made, but by God, you really have to wade through an awful lot of absolute rubbish in order in order to get to find find some gems and i think the wicker man is just one of those films where you just really have to seek it out and the the, the remake is just such an, a great example of taking everything that was great about the first film and just completely nearly lampooning it and making an absolute mess of it it was so misjudged and that original film it, again we talk about the tone we talk about the you know, just how uneasy and unsettling it is. When it came to the Nick Cage, Neil LeBoot movie, they just, they, it was almost as if they had only heard about the first Wicker Man and they, it, 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 they really didn't get what, why it was such a special film. And that Wicker Man, you have to remember that twist ending, which I, I again, I don't really want to spoil it here and now because I, I do feel if anyone that's listening that they really should seek it out if they haven't seen it. And it'd be great to hear the reaction to it. But that twist ending, when I saw it, going back to not knowing much about the movie and how I had to seek out certain information through books and magazines, and like I knew there was something special about the ending, but I just didn't know what. And when the ending does happen, it completely takes you by surprise and it i for me i have it up there as one of those great twist endings that's up there with the sixth sense and from i i can understand why christopher lee campaigned so hard for people to see this film when it came out in 1973 because they want the the the, the film company behind it lost faith in the movie they just had it as a double bill they just wanted it to play as the number two film to the other horror film that was on offer that weekend and Christopher Lee just got in touch with every journalist that he knew that had some prominence within the media and said, look, I need a favor. I really need to dig out. The, 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 the studios lost faith in this. I need you to get behind it. And and they did. And it has become a bit of a cult classic, but it had a rocky beginning. But I think it has endured. And please, please seek this one out as opposed to that horrendous Nick Cage film which is up there with the room. <laughs> really, it's awful. Just watch the YouTube clips of the Nick Cage and that they're actually worth it. <laughs> the next one on your list there, Escape from New York, which, you know, speaking of iconic, one of the most iconic action heroes of all time, Snake Plissken. He's a convict sent to Manhattan, which is now a, a maximum security prison to rescue the a kidnapped president. Do you remember how you first came across this film, or do you remember one of your first experiences of watching this? Oh, absolutely, Andy. This is, um, again, 
going back to not being allowed to watch certain films um, back in, it would have been even further back in my time machine now, back to 1985, my parents had moved from uh, Wicklow to Limerick. And while my parents were looking for a place to, to live at the time, they were they said, right, well, we're going gonna, gonna to live with an aunt. So we were living with my mum's sister um, out in a part of Limerick called Kuna. And her husband, she married to a German guy at the time, he had a huge amount of VHS tapes. And for those of a, vin- of a certain vintage, we'll remember VHS tapes. And uh, the, the, uh, what happened was um, I used to have the run of the house to myself. And especially early in the mornings at, at the weekend, I would because I would be up as a, like a lot of children up at the crack of dawn. And there was only two channels at the time. So in 1985, you had RT1, RT2. That was it. And there wasn't that much programs for kids. So I was allowed to go through my aunt's husband's VHS collection. And they were all like stuff that he had recorded. That's what it was. And there I say some pirate stuff in there, too. And so no one really gave a fiddlers as to what I was skimming through when it came to his VHS stuff. Now, some of the movies were some Clint Eastwood stuff like Any Which Way uh, But Loose, stuff like that. And there was like a couple of old Burt Reynolds movies. But by and large, a few of them were Westerns and that. And my parents would rent me movies from um, the local video shop that would keep me entertained. But sometimes you'd be kind of, after a while, after watching The Wizard of Oz for a few times, you're kind of going, right, I kind of just, I want to delve a little bit deeper into good old Manfred's uh, VHS collection. And um, I managed to come across Escape from New York, and it didn't even have a little sticker on the side or anything. So I put it into the VHS machine, and John Carpenter's score begins. And if anyone remembers that score, it's a real dum, 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 dum. And I was like, oh, God, that kind of has a slightly ominous tone, but it kind of almost just sort of, again, lures you in. And um, I was kind of intrigued by it. Uh, obviously, as a kid, 1985, okay, if I do the sums here, Andy, I think I was about seven. So uh, I didn't know what this was about. And I was, and when, it, and when the film started up, I was like, oh, my God, this is amazing. This guy, this action guy who kind of looks like a pirate, and he has been sent in to New York, which is full of these crazies, like the worst of the worst. You know, you've got these, there's cannibals in there, there's um, gangs, there's loads of these punks, there's like all the desirables you could imagine in one crazy cocktail are in New York. And he's got on his race against time mission to get in and get out um, with the goods, this being the president, and try and also free a few people along the way who have helped him in his mission and it just completely captivated me and but it was also at the time i was like oh, i've seen this film i clearly should not be allowed to watch this film at all even as a kid i clearly knew i should not be watching this at all and i thought this film has to be watched when all well like my my parents and my aunt and her husband are in bed because if i get rumbled there's no way i'll be going to the vhs collection again so i had to uh uh, to always try and watch it like very early on a Saturday or Sunday morning but I just loved it and um, of course I didn't know who the, the actor was or who the director was so I had no clue as to who John Carpenter was and, and his significance within um, film and, and Kurt Russell what a gear change the role of Snake Piskun would be for him so I knew nothing but 
I just knew what a visceral, immersive experience uh, Escape from New York was as a kid. And I think even to, even today, it's one of those films that I still have a really special place in my heart. And just to send slightly name droppy, like years later, when I started um, broadcasting on Spin 103.8 with the movie show We Love Movies, originally the show was a two-hander. It was me and a, a presenter by the name of Jonathan McRae. And Jonathan is now on News Talk. He has a show called Future Proof. And uh, two junkets had come in uh, at the time. So we're going back. I'm going to say oh, we, we could be, oh, maybe I'm going to take a stab at maybe 2005, maybe some, 2006, something like that. Um, the two junkets have come in um, side by side. One was for Poseidon and one was for um, X-Men, uh, the third X-Men movie. And um, the last, that wasn't the last battle or whatever it was. Oh, the last stand. The last stand. Thanks, Andy. Yeah, it was awful. And so the opportunity came in to either interview uh, Wolfgang Peterson and Kurt Russell for Poseidon or Halle Berry and Hugh Jackman for X-Men. And I was like, oh, jeez. Of course you went to Kurt Russell. And, and, well, this is the thing, right? I know this sounds terrible. So I, uh, I, I said it, it was my turn because we normally would take turns on the next junket that comes in. Um, you know, as I said, we would take turns so anyone could have dibs. So if it was my turn, I could either say yes or I could say no. But I, I was the one who had the the overall decision. And so it was my turn to say yes or no to which one I wanted to take. And I said to myself, right, Halle Berry. I so want to meet Halle Berry. Uh, and I said to John, any chance you take my Escape from New York DVD and get Kurt Russell to sign it? So Jonathan went, uh, yeah, 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 no problem. So at the end of the interview with, with Kurt Russell, he goes, um, Kurt, I should say to you that my uh, co-host, Gordon, had the opportunity to come over and interview you today. And he's a massive fan of yours and Escape from New York. It's a film he holds very dearly. And he should be here interviewing you today. So I just want to say that. Now. He should be here interviewing you. But... The opportunity came in to interview either you or Halle Berry. And guess where he is then, Kurt? He's with Halle Berry. And he goes, and that's no reflection on you, but uh, he is over there. Interview. And he wants you to sign his DVD. So he goes, I'm going to give you that DVD and you can sign it to whatever way you like. So Jonathan did all this as a real jab and having a, and, a, and as a laugh. And so I have in my collection um, Escape from New York that says... Uh, uh, to Halle, <laughs> uh, to to Halle. Oh, no, 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 no. Thanks a million, Halle. That's what it. Thanks a million, Halle, uh, from Kurt Russell. <laughs> so yeah, I have that in my DVD collection, which is a bit bizarre. But anyway, I have that. But I would, Andy, just very quickly say I did get to interview Kurt Russell a few years back. I eventually got to to interview him, and it was for Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Two. And it was for a Facebook Live. And when he first walked into the room, I had heard in advance that he was a little bit tentative about doing a Facebook Live because the whole thing was live. And he, I don't think he was doing many of these interviews on the day. And I was his first one to the Facebook Live. And I know he was a little bit unsure of it. And it definitely, when he walked into the room, he was slightly, he was guarded, just ever so slightly cold. No, because this is such a worry when you eventually get to meet yeah. a real hero. And I, when he knew where the interview was going and that I wasn't going to try any of these silly stunts to try and make the video try to go viral, he felt very much um, comfortable 
and him and I were chatting after it and he was so warm and I was delighted with how the interview went and then as I walked out he was walking up the, the corridor with his um, PA I heard him be very complimentary about the interview and that just I was over the moon I was absolutely over the moon because there was nothing worse than thinking oh I'd hate to go into this interview now and um, for it to come away and be like I'll never watch Escape from New York again <laughs> but anyway Escape from New York is just one of my all-time favourites. Um, I just think it's an absolute gem. <laughs> I, I could see why, as a single man, I think at the time, you would have went for Halle Berry, but, <laughs> you know, Kurt Russell should have taken precedence there regardless. <laughs> <laughs> um, again, this is a film that kind of suffers from inferior sequels as well. There's been rumours of, of remakes for years. Is that something you'd like to see a film remade? Do you have anyone in mind who you'd like to see take the role, or do you think it's Kurt Russell or bust. Uh, you know, I think I think any real fan of the Escape series, because Escape from LA, I, you know what, Andy, I just, I know it's there, but I don't feel it exists. I think it's the same way Terminator fans would just only ever, real Terminator fans would probably only just see that that, that series as just having two films. Um, and even Predator as well, like there's certain movies that you go, I know it's got loads of sequels, but I just, they all just pale into insignificance. And I think for, for me, Escape from L.A. always felt like this inferior remix of um, the original film. It just offered up no new ideas. I would like to see um, a remake of Escape from New York because I feel that that first film still holds up incredibly well and nobody can take anything away from that. And I would be intrigued to see what a new director, I, not some hack for hire, but like someone with an interesting voice has something to say. And I think you know, when that first film came out, it was very much a reflection of the Reagan era, um, which was bubbling away at the time for John Carpenter and the Watergate scandal. And there was a lot of deep political issues that were going on, like the divide that was happening within America between the rich and the poor. And, and so there was an awful lot to be said. And, and New York back in 1981 was not a particularly welcoming place. It was a very um, rundown. It was crime ridden. At that time, like 42nd Street, places like that were just, you know, after dark were quite sleazy, grimy, scuzzy areas. So it was very much a film that was trying to just try and shine a mirror on, on what was happening, whereas Escape from L.A. just could have had so much more going for it, bearing in mind the L.A. riots, um, which happened um, prior to it, the, the film's release. But anyway, um, I go off on a tangent. So I just think that... A new filmmaker that I believe is Lee Wanell, um, who is pretty much a mainstay worker for Jason Blum at the at the moment, and he's had success with him, um, with his uh, first film and 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 which was the third Insidious movie, and then and then he subsequently followed that up with Upgrade, which is a great movie, and uh, recently The Invisible Man, which is good trashy fun. Um, it's kind of perfect late night watching. So I believe that he's gotten the, going to be getting the gig. But I think, how do you how do you cast anyone better than Kurt Russell as Snake Pliskin? There are certain roles that certain actors just embody through and through, and it's very difficult for another actor to step into those shoes. I know with James Bond, they've been lucky enough that certain actors have brought new nuances to each uh, performance as Bond, so it makes the, the role their own. But if you take a character like Inspector Clouseau, like, no one's able to come close to Peter Sellers. Steve Martin, he's made two horrendous Pink Panther movies, and that's because you just cannot top 
um, Peter Sellers. There's only one actor. I mean, there's one actor that I really think could do the role justice of Snake. Halle Berry. Halle Berry. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Come back, Halle. All is forgiven. And um, I just think it's Wyatt Russell. I I do think that Kurt Russell's son would. I think it would be just an. I don't know if if Wyatt would want to do it because you know he's stepping into his father's shoes yeah. into one of his most legendary roles. And are you on a hiding to nothing? And Wyatt is very much carved out his own career and he's done a lot of television and he's popped up in movies like um 22 jump street and everybody wants some the uh, richard linklater movie he appears in that too and he's really good actor he's the um his mother is goldie hawn so when you when you do see him you just go wow he they, they really is just <laughs> he is the pair of them you can see it there he's got the the, the big blonde locks but then he has the, his father's head and um but I think he would make for a great Snake Pliskin. And I'm going to say very name droppy here, Andy, so please uh, bear with me. I remember <laughs> years ago, Channing Tatum and Jonah Hill were in Dublin for 22 Jump Street. They were um, doing the promotional tour for it. And you normally, when you do these junket setups, which is very similar to the way it's portrayed in Notting Hill, when uh, Hugh Grant <laughs> had to pretend he's with Horse and Hound magazine, you've got that awkwardness at the very at the beginning, you know, where... There are PA people and other uh, busybodies get making sure everything is okay before you start recording. And I just broke the ice with the two of them. Like Jonah Hill was very non-responsive, but Channing Tatum was a very warm guy. And um, I just broke the, the ice by saying, God, you know, Wyatt Russell's got his the image of, of, of Kirk, but yet they've got the blonde head of Goldie. And, and Channing he was kind of laughed. He's like, yeah, absolutely. And I just brought up just again, I said, you know what's been they've been trying to make remake for a long time is um, Escape from New York. I said, if anyone wants to play Snake Plissken, I said, with the great respect to people like Jared Butler, whose name has been attached, forget them. Die the head off that Wyatt Russell. Get him, get a brown head of hair on him, and then I said, an eye patch, and I said, there's your new Snake Plissken. And Channing Tatum burst out laughing, and he was like, oh my God, he would be amazing. And uh, <laughs> so I kind of thought, that's the first time I actually kind of thought about it i'm like yeah he would be brilliant he would be brilliant and from what i hear from a film colleague of mine who interviewed lee wanell from uh, for the for the invisible man um after the, the the cameras were rolling he asked him about escape from new york and when i said yeah I'm, I'm down to write it but i'm going to be directing it and uh his journalist colleague of mine asked him and who would you like to play Snake Plissken? And he goes, I'm going to do everything I can, he said, to get Wyatt Russell. So there you go. So You're going to get a commission from that now if, uh, if that comes true. You've been pushing that one for a while. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> there is a precedent, though. You have uh, James Gandolfini. So now he's playing um, young Tony Soprano in the, the Many Saints at Newark. So it, it's not out of the realms of possibility. Um, the last film on your list there, uh, one I absolutely love as well, I must say, Mad Max 2. Um, the sequel it's set in very much kind of escalates from the first film it's like a post-apocalyptic wasteland now and max is trying to you know help this community escape from a horde of bandits why would you pick this film over say the original or even the, the tom hardy remake will ignore thunderdome for its, its awesome soundtrack but i don't think it's going to feature many top three lists so why did you pick this one of the, the mad max bunch Again, it, it, it's it's all about its time and its place, really. Um, going back to, to Limerick of the mid-80s when I was living there for a couple of years, 
there wasn't that many kids around like there were a few um and so movies meant an awful lot to me so i would be brought to the video store at least once or twice a week and to be able to pick out loads of different films and there would be occasions where there would be certain movies which just slipped through the net my mother would invariably bring me but there would be just those few films that she really didn't pay attention to what i was picking up and what i wanted and there would be films like rambo first blood part two that i managed to get into my little collection of about four or five movies and she would just bring them up to the counter and, and rent them out and mad max and mad max uh, two were were both films that i was able to uh, rent and my mother didn't bat an eyelid like and again andy i was about seven or eight way below the age that you should be watching those films and it was mad max 2 that i watched first and then i managed to see the first film and they really are totally two completely different films all in all like <clears throat> the first mad max movie is a bit of a slower affair but I think what I loved about them in comparison to um, Fury Road is that there was a real nihilistic feel about the first two movies. And in particular, I, like that second film, like, yeah, it's a, it's a more muscular film than the first. But you just really felt that you were in the wasteland with Max. And with Mad Max 2, before... He's already like the film starts at such a pace, like the camera pans out from the engine of uh, Max's interceptor. He is being chased by a few punks, being led by Wes, played by the great Vernon Wells, and they are after him. And it is just this adrenaline pumping opening, which hits you at a mile a minute, and you're suddenly, boom, you are in, in it straight away. How is he going to get away from these guys? And you'll have to watch the film to find out. But it subsequently brings him into the um, uh, the company of the uh, gyro captain, who's played brilliantly by what's his name again? Bruce Spence. There we go. And uh, but there's a there's a bit in, in an Andy where when they're up on this mountainous region and they're looking down at this particular um, uh, encampment, which the, the gyro captain has said, look. Um, if you, I can bring you to a place, this is where he asked Max to spare his life. I'll bring you to a place where they're constantly pumping and cajugging, as he said, and this guzzling. And he goes, you can get all the fuel you want, uh, but getting in is going to be difficult. So when Max is up on this mountainous area and he's got his binoculars and he sees all these bandits um, surrounding this encampment, they just want to get in and to get their hands on the precious fuel. And this gang is led by Lord Humongous. But there's one scene which is fairly harrowing where um, those that are in the encampments, they try to make a break for it because they're just trying to gauge how quickly they can get out of the encampment before they are chased. And what they do is they send out one particular team out first and then another one almost makes their way out the back door. And the ones that are making their way out the back door, they are still spotted and they are followed. And... There's a really, there's a nasty rape scene that happens. And, I, and again, Andy, I was so young and I saw this and I was like, oh, my God. It really kind of gave you a, a really unsettling feeling like, oh, my God. Like, I feel like I'm up there in that mountain with Max watching what is going on. I shouldn't be here. This is unbelievable. But I want him to get down there and get justice for these people. And 
at its heart, the film is like a Western, really. It's like a siege movie because he does um, help the people. And he is this um, almost slightly messiah to a degree figure in that he really is the one that offers them hope. And yet he's a man of few words. And you've got the feral kid. And if you look very closely at their hair, they're... they both have the same type of little white little streak that goes through their hair because the feral kid excuse me is someone that you feel has the leadership qualities that max has and that will one day eventually grow up to be someone similar to max and it's all about how he's going to try and help these people as much as he begrudgingly um doesn't want to but in the end he realizes no this is what i need to do and he finally gets a grip with his moral compass and that's when he helps them because um, he finds a tanker, which we see earlier on in the movie where things really come back into play. And that is going to be their salvation. And remember, as I said earlier on, they came up with this dummy run to a, a escape the encampment. Something similar happens again toward the end. But by God, that ending when Lord Humongous and everyone, it's like the wacky races once they're after Max and uh, the re- some of the team with that um, tanker. It is... It's like that amp has been switched up to 11. You know, I mean, you are, you're thinking, how in the name of good God are they going to get, get, get away? And it is just proper visceral action again. No CGI. And that's what I probably love about it, is that there's no CGI at play here. This is just bone-crunching action. And there weren't many films like that at that time. And I think that's why the film just so holds up. The music is amazing by Brian May, not the Brian May from Queen. But it's just, you just feel like you're out in that wasteland. It just has that quality about it. There's so many great characters created by George Miller, and the the film's writer-director, who was originally once a doctor, believe it or not. Um, For those that, a lot of people would be be aware of that. But um, he was a doctor who made the, the transition to becoming filmmaker and one of Australia's most successful filmmakers. So it's just brilliant. It really is. Uh, Mel Gibson is just, he looked like fantastically handsome man at that time, and he just was brilliant as Max. And it's just got so many great character actors surrounding him. It's got a great sense of place and tone, and for me, it'll always be the pick of the litter with the Mad Max movies. We were talking there about George Miller. I'm always sad we never got his Justice League film. I talk about an eclectic career as well. He's gone from Mad Max to Happy Feet to Justice League, then back to Fury Road. And um, something you said there, I kind of picked up on is, but it's actually a theme. I think for the three films you have here, is the love that's put in some, like um, even like Escape from New York, like the, the paintings in the background were done by a, a young James Cameron. Do you think that now, when you've got you know your things like your Netflix, you have Disney Plus, you have like a new blockbuster every week, like the reason, and I'd be the same. Like I have films on my list similar to this. Because you were exposed to them so young, because there wasn't a lot of alternatives, you were kind of forced to rewatch this. With new films coming out like daily at this point now, do you think we're losing a lot of that you know, love for the filmmaking? It's it's very much a business now, as maybe it, you know it's always been a business, but it hasn't got that you know that rebel and that love into it that that it used to have. Yeah, I think to a degree that's a, that's a yeah that's very true, Andy. Because I look at my own son now and. And, yeah, you know, he just will skim through Netflix and there's so much content that is there. And Disney Plus is another example that, yeah, you kind of wonder, um, you know, 
is he retaking all of it on board? And I still have a lot of DVDs. I really do. I have loads of stuff there. And I think out of the one film that he's seen out of mine that I've allowed him to watch and that he has a real love for is The Goonies. And it does make you kind of think in this day and age, there are certain scenes in The Goonies that if it was to be remade, it probably never would be allowed to get through, like from the truffle shuffle to the slot being chained up down the basement. Like there's loads of things in it that you go that probably wouldn't make it past the censors these days or even uh, in the studio system. So there, there, is, there, was a, there was a certain carefree attitude that definitely came with those um, older films that you're probably not seeing um, today. But yeah, there is so much that is being churned out at a conveyor belt rate and that you have so much choice. And if something's not working for you within 10 minutes, it's like, well, nah, screw that. I can just go and find something else. And films are so readily available as well that I do think there was a mystique around certain movies when you'd hear about them. Like a film that's not on my list that I definitely was not allowed to watch was A Nightmare on Elm Street. I just was not allowed to watch that movie. And that was the one film that I could not slip through the net. And the more I read about Freddy Krueger, the more I was just taken aback by, how am I going to get, eventually get to watch this film? And so now you can be able to watch these movies um, a lot easier than someone like me back in the mid 80s had trying to seek these films out. And it was so, so, so difficult. And I also think as well, another amazing quality about um, the video store and the DVD store uh, back in the day would have been the opportunity of just rifling through the libraries and the, the, the effort that was put into some of the front covers as well. Like I remember as a kid just being like just blown away by just the front cover of an American werewolf in London. And just because the, the front cover, if anyone remembers, is just a little screen grab from the um the transformation scene so it's very much the man becoming the wolf and i remember as a kid going my god that's absolutely horrific you know it's like going, what is that all about and like i go off on a tangent all about my love for that film as well along with a nightmare on elm street but again you you kids and now they've just been like if they're rifling through a streaming service you know it's kind of a quick little look at the, the cover and the covers are nothing really these days they're really nothing so that that's not even drawing you in anymore so you're passing over these films it's it's definitely a different um it's de definitely different i see for my own son but then i look at him and he's six i think my god a year like i was seven when i saw some of the the films and as a father now we're going there's no way i'll be letting him watch escape from new york yeah. at seven or mad max 2 at seven but yet i saw them and they've had this incredible imprint on me and I think they've definitely sowed the seed for me and uh, my love for movies. That's great. Escape from New York, Mad Max 2 and The Wicker Man 3. Absolutely cracking films. If you haven't seen them, check them out. And if you have, I think they're definitely worth a rewatch. What else will we be doing this day and age? Gordon Hayden, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks, Andy. Much appreciated.